The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Well, let's continue in our worship together, and I would invite you now to look to God's Word with me in Scripture. If you have a Bible, you can open up, actually, uh, open up your bulletin if you want to follow along. We're not going to be in a particular book today, but we will start in Matthew chapter 1. And if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand because we've got some available for you coming down the aisle there. So we are taking a break away from uh, the Gospel of John to highlight the true meaning of Christmas. By the way, you came in a little after I made the announcements. If you're visiting today, and if you could take a moment to fill out that white card, that would be fantastic because we want to know who you are because we feel responsible for you that we believe God brought you here today. So. You just put your name on there and an email on this white card and then get this to an usher or me after the service because we want to use that to follow up with you just to say thank you for coming and see how we might minister to you, maybe answer some of your questions. And before we go on with our sermon, I would invite anybody that is in fifth grade on down, if you want to be a part of Children's Church, you're uh, invited to do that. You can just go ahead and meet in the lobby back there. And twice a month, we provide children's church for fifth graders on down during the teaching time for those that would like to take advantage of that. It's up to you, the family, the parents, how you see best fit to minister to your family and your children. But we will continue. And like I said, if you can open up to Matthew chapter 1. And that is the passage that I want to look at from God's Word today as we think about the meaning of Christ's birth and holiday season, Christmas in particular. It can be exciting, but it also can pose challenges for people depending upon one of the biggest challenges is where you're going to spend the holidays and who you're going to spend them with. And many times out of precedent and obligation, you have to interact, spend time with relatives which for some isn't always a joy or easy, really. For others, it is a blessed joy. So there are unique challenges that arise during the Christmas season. Sometimes loneliness comes up. But for the Christian, regardless of your situation and where you are and where you have to be and who you have to spend it with, if you're a believer, it is a time to celebrate. And it is time to celebrate the birth, the life, the death and resurrection and the ongoing reign of Jesus Christ, our King, our personal Savior, for those who know Him personally. So it is a time of rejoicing and great joy as He invaded this world as the glorious Savior. And so that's kind of the theme that I want to highlight today. You'll note in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17 are the verses I want to look at, talk about. And the title I put there for the sermon is Jesus, the Savior for the world. Not the Savior of the world, but the Savior for the world. That was intentional. Savior for the whole world. In other words, he wasn't just the savior for the Jews. His reach went beyond the Jews to the Gentiles or what scripture calls the nations. He's the the only savior that God has given to all of humanity, regardless of your ethnic background and origin. Jesus is the only savior. He is the savior for the world. He didn't come just for the Jews. He came for all people. And Matthew really highlights that in Matthew 1 through 17. So let's go ahead and look at Matthew 1 through 17. I'm not going to read all that passage right now, but I do want to 
point out a few things, highlight a few things, and then we will look at a couple of verses in Matthew 1, 1 through 17. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, and so the New Testament opens up with this book and also this chapter. And you'll note right away as you look at it, it's a genealogy. Typical Christian, oh, yawn, yawn, genealogy. Skip that page. I'm not reading that. We have genealogies in the Old Testament, Leviticus, Numbers, Chronicles, Kings, genealogies all over the place. And it's interesting that the New Testament, which introduces Jesus Christ to the world, would begin with the genealogy. Because for the most part as Americans, we have no use for genealogies, practically speaking. So I do want to point out some things that are quite beneficial out of the genealogy and maybe think about the genealogy in a way that you never have before. Maybe you've actually never read through it or thought about the implications Uh, It's actually very deliberate, profound, sacred, and it is just as important as any other piece of Scripture that we have in our Bible is this genealogy in chapter 1, 1 through 17, and can teach us much about the gospel, about Jesus, and even why he was born. And I think one of the things that just comes and jumps out of the page from the genealogy of Matthew 1, 1 through 17 is that Jesus is the Savior for the world. For the world. Just a couple of verses there on this genealogy. Uh, it starts out Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy. When Matthew wrote this, they didn't have books like we do. This is kind of binding. Literally, it could mean scroll. It was just written down. So it was formal. It was preserved. The record, literally, a written record is what it's talking about. A written record of the genealogy or the line of descendancy regarding Jesus. So the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Christ, not His last name, Christ means the Anointed One, Jesus the Anointed One, Jesus the King, literally, the rightful King, that's Matthew's theme. It's all over the place in Matthew, especially in chapters 1 and 2. This is the book, a written, formal genealogy of Jesus Christ the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Well, Jesus wasn't the son literally of David because David lived a thousand years before Christ. So the son of just simply means the offspring of, the descendant of David. And also, Jesus was a descendant of Abraham. And then it starts in verse 2, and to Abraham, so it picks up, Jesus' genealogy starting with Abraham, which is about 2,000 B.C. So Matthew has skipped 2,000 years of world history. He didn't start with Adam. There's nothing between Adam and Abraham. So why does Matthew skip 2,000 years of history and just begin Jesus' genealogy starting at Abraham? But he goes to Abraham, uh, verse 2, to Abraham was born Isaac, Isaac, Jacob, to Jacob, uh, Judah, and his brothers. So those are the great patriarchs that we find in the Old Testament, Genesis goes through other people. And then in verse 6, it says, To Jesse was born David the king. So for the most part, names are just named. But here, David the king. There's an explanatory note. That is significant. That is key. That is the theme of this chapter, the theme of the entire Gospel of Matthew. King, regal, royalty, Christ. He's accentuating that. Jesus came from David, the king, the greatest king of Israel up to the time of the birth of Christ. David was. And to David, verse 6, was born Solomon, another amazing king. 
Israel as a nation, as a theocracy, reached its zenith in terms of wealth, influence, prosperity, even expansion of land under Solomon. King. Then it lists all those other descendants, many of whom are kings from Israel. Then in verse 12, it begins to get obscure in terms of the names because Old Testament history doesn't give us a whole lot of information at all about all these people from verses 12 to 16. Then in 16, getting nearer to Jesus, it says to Jacob was born Joseph, who was the carpenter, uh, we know from other passages, was born Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus. So uh, Mary is injected into this genealogy to highlight that Jesus was born of Mary. Jesus was not an offspring of Joseph biologically, but legally Joseph adopted Jesus after Mary gave birth to him. Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus. He was the legal father of Jesus. So apparently this is Joseph's genealogy. Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, whom is called Christ, Messiah, anointed one, king. Verse 17, therefore all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and if you count them, that's correct. And from David to deportation to Babylon, there are 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the time of Christ are 14 generations. So it's 14, 14, 14. Uh, we know from history, if you look in the Old Testament, uh, some names were skipped. So it doesn't, it's not that smooth. There aren't 14 generations literally, but in this genealogy there's 14. And the reason Matthew did that, one of the reasons is that it was a mnemonic device for the Jews to remember the basic overall genealogy of Jesus Christ as King, as Messiah. 14, 14, 14, starting with Abraham going to David. And the reason uh, that uh, Matthew chooses to begin with Abraham and not the very beginning with Adam is because he wants to highlight the fact that Jesus was a Jew because Abraham was the first Jew. God created the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel, with Abraham. And he starts with the quintessential Jew Abraham, the father of the Jews, to show that Jesus is a Jew. And then he accentuates and highlights that Jesus came from the loins of David because when the Jews thought about David, they thought of the greatest king in the history of Israel. And so when they associate Jesus with David, they think king. Jesus is a Jew. Jesus is king. And that's why it begins with Abraham and David. That's what he's trying to show, that Jesus is king. Uh, But this genealogy communicates more than that. Uh, These specific names that are chosen were providentially selected and purposely selected by God to communicate to us, His people, things we need to understand about Jesus Christ, this great King, this Savior for the world. And as I read through the names and search Old Testament history, uh, one thing that just is clear about this is this genealogy is filled with sinful, wretched people. It is. It's amazing. This genealogy just reeks of sin when you find out the biology and the lives of these people reeks it's blatant and at the same time the glorious paradox or irony or whatever it is at the same time not only does it reek of sin this genealogy glows with grace it glows with the grace of god the mercy of god the forgiveness of god I'm not picking on these people in the genealogy because if this genealogy had our names in here, I could say the same thing. This genealogy reeks of sin. If people really knew our lives and our hearts. Because they're humans, fallen humans. So in light of this genealogy, 
where Christ is the pinnacle of it all and the focal point of it all, uh, I want to pull away four lessons and reminders about the truth of who Jesus is, why He was born, why He came to earth, and what it means that He is the Savior for the world. Four truths that this genealogy can remind us of, of the greatness of Jesus Christ, this wonderful, blessed Savior. Like I said, He's not just an isolated Savior only for Jewish people, or He didn't come just for good people and just for religious people and just for those who got it right. Just the opposite is true. And we're going to see that. Who did Jesus come into this world to seek and to save? And I'm going to make four proposals. Number one is that Jesus the Messiah was born to save Gentiles. Gentiles are non-Jews. The Hebrew word in the Old Testament is the goim. The nations. All it meant was if you were not Jewish. The the non-Jewish people. Jesus came to save Jews. True. And He also came to save those who were not Jewish. Jews. He came to save Gentile sinners. And this great truth just is clearly seen throughout this genealogy because this is the legal genealogy of Jesus Christ. It's like his credentials of the right to be king. Now, if you look at Luke chapter three, there's another genealogy there and it it goes in reverse order in terms of ascending and descending order. And it's different. And critics of the Bible and critics of Christianity like to say, well, the Bible's full of contradictions and errors. Well, name one. Well, a blatant contradiction is that the genealogy in Matthew 1 totally conflicts with Luke chapter 3. No, it doesn't. As a matter of fact, it is a perfect complement and perfect fit. There is not one thing that contradicts between these two different genealogies, Luke 3 and Matthew chapter 1. They're just simply written for two different purposes, to highlight and accentuate truths about Jesus Christ, Savior, Messiah. Some of those basic differences are is that Luke's genealogy in chapter 3 traces Jesus back to Adam, the first man. So Luke is trying to highlight that Jesus was a man. So it's highlighting his bloodline. He was, although he was God, he, was also, he became a human being, 100% human, so that he could die as the perfect substitute for sinners. So there's, uh, these genealogies are very purposeful. And that's what Luke highlights, that Jesus was a man. He came from Adam, uh, Also, it's probably in Luke chapter 3, Mary's bloodline and genealogy. The emphasis is not on uh, Jesus' legal right to be king, but in Matthew it definitely is. Because in Matthew chapter 1, Jesus came from, through Joseph's line, and Joseph had the legal right to reign. His family, his line, his descendants, he had the right to claim kingship through the proper line, going back to David the king himself. So you've got to understand the differences and why genealogies exist. By the way, when, like I said early on, when we see a genealogy, we typically fall asleep or we want to skip those pages. I don't know if you've ever done that in the book of Numbers. Oh, skip that. Oh, there's six chapters of my reading done. Boom, didn't read those. <laughs> Numbers 1 through 6 or Chronicles, chapters 1 through 9. Boom, done with those. What could I possibly learn? For the Jews, genealogies were very important and even in practical ways. Here's some practical reasons that the Jews needed to know their lineage and their genealogy and their descendancy and how it had to be written down and preserved and safeguarded and guarded with their life because it affected their life in many ways. Genealogies, they needed to know their biological descent as a Jew, absolutely essential for many different reasons, uh, some of which might include your right to an inheritance. You had to prove what line you came from, what your birth order was, were you the firstborn, the secondborn, the lastborn? Your inheritance depended upon it and you had to show it by record, written record in your genealogy. Your genealogy also established your property rights. That's how God divided up the land when they came into the land of Canaan and divided into 12 chunks and it was based on your lineage. Were you a descendant of Levi? Okay, sorry you don't get any land proper, but you'll get special cities and other privileges. 
Uh, but if you're from Benjamin, you get this area in geography here. If you're Dan, you've got to live way up there. So that was established by your genealogy and also where you would register a time of census and those kind of things. So property rights. Sometimes your occupation depended upon and was established by your genealogy. This was true of the priestly line. From Levi's line. It had to be established by your lineage. Your genealogy. Spiritual privilege was many times determined by your genealogy. Especially in light of Genesis 49 where God took the 12 tribes of Israel and pronounced curses and blessings on the family heads and their genealogy. Spiritual privilege. Military service was determined by your lineage and genealogy. Census data was preserved and determined by your genealogy. Probably the most important is succession to an office to serve on behalf of God was determined by your genealogy. And one of the, and the offices would be priest, but another office would be the right to be king over the land of Israel. And we know that from 2 Samuel chapter 7, which we looked at last week, the right to be king, the Messiah, king of the world, had to come from the line of David, from the lineage of data, from the tribe of Judah. That's why King Saul, the first king of Israel, could not be the king of Israel. Why? Because he was not from the tribe of Judah. That was the tribe that God said, this will be the rightful reign. It was through Judah. King Saul, the first king of Israel, was from the tribe of Benjamin. That was an illegitimate tribe to be king on God's behalf. So Jesus has the right to reign as king in light of his lineage. Very important to keep that in mind. So let's go ahead and look at this first point that Jesus, the Messiah, was born to save Gentiles, non-Jews. Several places we can look. The first one I want to look at is just uh, chapter 1, verse 5. Uh, so Abraham is the first Jew, but everybody that came from the loins of Abraham wasn't necessarily a purebred or full-blooded Jew. They may have been a partial Jew. Some of them weren't Jews at all. Uh, but the first Gentile we see in this, or one of the key Gentiles in verse 5, it says, And to Salmon was born Boaz by Rahab. Rahab uh, was not a full-blooded Jew. Rahab, as a matter of fact, was probably a pagan living in the city of Jericho. And when they went to try to take the promised land, uh, Rahab lived in Canaan, probably at the time an idol worshiper, worshiping false gods, uh, didn't have pure Jewish blood. So she was a, a non-Jew. She was considered a Gentile, unclean. Yet here she is in the, in the very genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, Savior of the world. So there's Rahab, Gentile. Then there's another one in verse 5. And to Boaz was born Obed by Ruth. Ruth, there's another one. Ruth was not a Jew. <clears throat> she was somewhat related through different relationships to Abraham. But she was a Moabitess. She was from Moab. That's what she was called. The people of Moab. On the east side of the Jordan River was an area called Moab. She's a descendant of this boy named, or this man named Moab, <clears throat> who was Moab. Moab was the son of Lot. <clears throat> Lot was the nephew of Abraham. Lot ran out of the city when God was going to destroy it, Sodom and Gomorrah, and Lot left with his two daughters. <clears throat> they hid in a cave, and then Lot had intimacy with his two daughters. Actually, they got him drunk. They got their dad drunk, had intimacy with him, and then they had some offspring. They both got pregnant, the two daughters. And one of the daughters uh, gave birth to a, a son named Moab. So Moab was the son of Lot, the illegitimate, incestuous son of Lot. A defiled race, ethnically speaking. And then eventually, 
Moab had descendants, and then that's where Ruth came from. She was a Moabitess, and the Moabites were considered despised and cursed by God. Deuteronomy 23.3, God simply said categorically to the Jewish people, to Moses, to the people of his day, we need to keep our race pure, our religion pure. Don't let people defile it. Don't don't let the Canaanites come and defile it with their false religion, false beliefs, uh, immoral practices, including these uh, certain... Nations God didn't want tampering with Israel were the Moabites. And God said in Deuteronomy 23.3, No Moabite may enter the assembly of Yahweh. Do not let the Moabites in. They are unclean. They worship a false god. They worship many false gods. They practice sexual immorality. They rejected the Creator God. Don't let them in. They are unclean. That was a decree given by God. And then somehow... Ruth, the Moabitess, was allowed to enter into the Jewish community. And we read that in this wonderful little book called the Book of Ruth. You know what? That was God's grace. That was God's grace and mercy that He allowed Ruth to enter in and become really a believing Jew even though ethnically she was a Moabite and never should have been let in. That's God taking something bad and working it together for good, which He promises to do. Because Ruth never should have been allowed to marry this Jewish man named Boaz that she did. And And when she married Boaz, she took on... Uh, Yahweh is her true personal God. She abandoned her false religion. She joined the Israelite community and submitted to God's will as given in Old Testament Israelite scripture. She became a believing person and out of her loins came the Messiah. Amazing. God is gracious to the Gentiles. Even the ones that He said were cursed, accursed people. I can identify with that. Great truth. There are many more non-Jews all throughout here. You've got uh, the wife of Uriah in verse 6. The wife of Uriah. She was a Gentile. She was married to... Uriah was a Hittite. Hittite were descendants of Ham. According to Genesis 9, Ham was the cursed son of Noah who defiled sexually his father. Genesis 9. And God cursed Ham. He cursed the son of Ham, which was Canaan, And his descendants became the Canaanites, a despised, accursed people of God, out of which came the Hittite people. And out of the Hittite people came this man named Uriah, who, according to Scripture, as we read his story, is an honorable man, faithful to King David of Israel. Amazing. So God is gracious throughout history, throughout His providence, to sinners, to Gentile sinners, those who were afar off. He's gracious. We shouldn't be surprised by this because all along, all throughout Scripture, God was working with the Gentiles. God loved the Gentiles. God wanted to save the Gentiles. God is the creator of the Gentiles, not just the Jews. Of all people, every human being is made in God's image. Every human being. Regardless of your ethnic origin, where you were born, where you came from, who your parents are, what your genealogy is, who your descendants were, you are made in the image of God. Therefore, you are precious and sacred to God the Creator. And as such precious and sacred to Jesus, the Savior. Just a glorious and great truth. And that's why, oh, so this is a truth in the Old Testament. God was already saving Gentiles in the Old Testament. Job was not a Jew. The Ninevites that God had compassion on in the days of Jonah were not Jewish. So there's plenty of Gentiles getting saved all throughout history. Anybody that got saved before Abraham came along technically was not a Jew, right? Because the Jews began with Abraham. And then Isaiah says this wonderful promise. Isaiah 49, 6, 700 years before Christ was born, predicted the Messiah would come as the Savior of the world. 
and not just to Jews, but also to Gentiles who are far off. And it says that the Messiah would be a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles. And that's fulfilled in the New Testament with Christ's birth, his coming, his death on behalf of sinners, including those who are not Jewish. That's why I love this great truth. And I do want to read it out of Galatians chapter 3, 28, where Jesus came into the world. He came to save any sinner that would turn to him in repentance and ask him to be their Lord and Savior, regardless of their ethnic origin, whether they are Jew or Gentile. And then if they put their faith in Jesus Christ as the God-man and believe that he died on the cross for their sins and that God the Father punished him on their behalf, and if they believe that he rose again from the dead triumphantly and that he reigns today as King of kings and Lord of lords, and they come to Jesus as Savior and truly believe that, Christ will save that person. It doesn't matter if you're a... Jew or Gentile. Your race doesn't matter. That's the thing about Christianity. That's the beauty of it. Your race doesn't matter. There's no excuse for prejudice when you're a Christian. I remember when I became a Christian at age 19, my prejudice just was gone. God eliminated it altogether. I became colorblind. I saw no race. I only saw two categories of people. Believers and unbelievers. That's it. And that's what Scripture says. That's the only race. There's the heavenly race, the Christian race, the saved race, and those who are not saved. Skin color superficial means nothing. That's why Galatians uh, has this wonderful promise about Jesus Christ, the Savior. In Galatians 3.28, it says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. So he's saying, race doesn't matter. Ethnicity doesn't matter. So what's, what's the demographic of your church? Is it white, Asian, Hispanic, black, blah, 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 blah. I don't even get into this conversation. It doesn't matter. I'll tell you our demographic is we are all sinners in need of God's mercy. That's our demographic. And the other category is there's the saints and the ain'ts. Those who believe and those who don't. That's all we need to know. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. You know what that means? Social strata doesn't matter. How much money you make, what your occupation is, what your job is. Zilcho means nothing. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female. I don't get into the gender just you know, conversation at all? Because it doesn't matter. In terms of a human being made in the image of God. All equal. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. For you all, everyone who believes in Jesus Christ, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. One family of God, one body of Christ. It's all that matters. It's all that matters. Beautiful, great truth. Jesus, the Messiah, was born to save Gentiles. And if you are not a Jew this morning, you should be saying, Amen. Can I get an Amen? Amen. Because that would be me. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Point number two. Jesus, the Messiah, was born to save women. Not just women, but His mission included women. This is paramount in this genealogy because in a typical Jewish genealogy starting in Genesis chapter 5, Genesis chapter 11, the first several chapters of the book of Numbers, uh, the first nine chapters of First Chronicles, anywhere you see a genealogy, mostly what you see is a genealogy of the names of men and only men. That's standard. Women are not included in genealogies. Well, is that because God doesn't care about women? No, that is not why. God did that really just for practical reasons, very practical. Like I think of Numbers chapter 1 verse 2 says this. Moses is telling, God is telling Moses to take a census and to do it by way of a genealogy. And again, keep in mind there are 2 million people Moses has to contend with. So to simplify life on a practical 
level, God tells Moses this. Take a census of all the congregation of the sons of Israel, the male descendants of Israel, by their families, by their father's household. See, he's narrowing it. I can't count to a million people. God will make it easy for you. Let's go with the men. By their families, by their father's households, according to the number of names, every male, head by head. Numbers chapter 1, verse 2. So, but you read, you know, the Old Testament, you find that all these genealogies don't have men. It wasn't because uh, God uh, doesn't like women or he's um, chauvinistic or anything like that. Not at all. Practical reasons and other reasons. So when you come to the New Testament, the first thing you see is a genealogy out of the block. And then all of a sudden you've got these female names popping up all over the place. Like, wow, this is weird. This is unique. This is different. This ain't normal. This ain't customary. This is offensive. This is scandalous. This doesn't fit the trend. What is with all these females in this genealogy of Jesus the Messiah? What's up with that? I'll tell you what's up with that. First, we'll look at them. There is in verse 3, there is Tamar. There's a woman. And then in verse 5, oh, there's Rahab. And then there's Ruth. By the way, the character of these women, whoa, is shocking. Their names are almost embarrassing. Tamar, Rahab. Oh, look at the end of verse 6. The wife of Uriah. She's not named by name. That's Bathsheba. Another woman. Verse 16 concludes, uh, and to Jacob was born Joseph, the husband of Mary. So look at all these women you've got. This was totally out of the ordinary. Matthew's trying to communicate something. Jesus, the, the Savior, came to save all sinners, including women. Did you know that the Bible, Jesus, and Christianity elevated the status of women back to its proper place because for 4,000 years of history, women had been subjugated and put underfoot and despised? Literally. Did you know that that's true of all major religions of the world today? They do not elevate women to their proper status. What is their proper status? Equally made in the image of God. That's what a woman is. Equally made in the image of God. That's Genesis chapter 1. God said, I'm going to make man in my image image of and in the image of god god created humanity male and female he created them it's a man and a woman together that fully reflects the perfect image of god tangibly speaking so it is christianity that elevated the status of women and that's what this genealogy is telling us jesus christ is savior not just of men not just of the elite not just of jews but of women of sinful women of despicable women of outcast women amazing just think about some of the largest religions of the world today hinduism did you know that formally speaking there is no salvation for women in hinduism there isn't so the only way out of that is you got to be reincarnated and come back as something hopefully other than a woman hopefully a cow or a cockroach or a man seriously that's hinduism one of the largest religions in the world what about islam did they fare any better absolutely not did you know that in the quran which i have read more than a few times and actually have taught on it in the Quran that we have today. Women are subjugated. They are inferior. According to the Quran, husband, a, a Muslim husband has the right to beat his wife. It's in the Quran. If you're a Muslim man, you can marry up to four women. Women don't have that right. They can't marry four men. It's in the Quran. Today in countries like Saudi Arabia that are Islamic in their theology and in their theocracy, women don't have rights. Can't drive, can't vote. Can't show your face. 
It was Jesus. It was the Bible. It was Christianity that liberated women and put them in their proper place. Made in the image of God. That's why the book of Peter says, reminds husbands to treat their wife in a godly manner because that wife of yours is not inferior and your footstool. She is a co-heir with Christ. It's the amazing thing in Revelation 2 and 3 when it says that in the future, if you are a Christian, someday you're going to reign with Christ and sit on His throne and co-reign with Christ in glory with a rod of iron. Did you know that Female Christians get the same promise and privilege in the future. They're going to be reigning with Christ with a rod of iron in the future during the millennium. Whoa, look out, husbands. It's a great truth. So Christianity, Jesus Christ, brought the value of femaleness and womanhood to its proper place, made in the image of God. And you see it all over the Gospels where Jesus had this special ministry to women and how the women had a special ministry to Jesus. It's the, the first person to see Jesus, the resurrection, was a woman. Not because women are better, but God's... Making it clear. Man and woman, co-equal before God in terms of their value, status, sacredness, and sanctity. Now, we're not going to talk about function and roles because those are different. Because God has designated the husband as the head of the home. Not that he's got a higher sanctity or anything like that. It's just roles. We need roles. That's by God's design. So Jesus the Messiah was born to save women. And we see that clearly in this genealogy from the women that are there which is unique. Number three, why else did Jesus come? Jesus, the Messiah, was born to save outcasts. Outcasts, those who are despised by society, despised by the community, that live on the outskirts, the fringe, those kind of people that nobody wants to even deal with or be around or talk to or touch. You know, Jesus gravitated towards those kind of people, didn't he? You see it all over the Gospels. I'm just thinking about Luke 5 where that... uh, guy that had the disease of leprosy. What was the one thing you weren't supposed to do to a leper was touch him. And it says specifically in Luke 5 that Jesus went up and touched him. A leper was outcast of all outcasts. This is so typical, but this genealogy is filled with outcasts. Pathetic souls. One I didn't list there, but one that jumps out at me is uh, the wife of Uriah. Uh who I've already mentioned was Bathsheba. So that's look at verse 6. And to David was born Solomon, and by her uh, who had been the wife of Uriah. So it's talking about Bathsheba is mentioned or referenced here in this genealogy. Talk about an outcast. She was a total outcast. I already said that she was the wife of a Hittite, so she was probably a pagan, Gentile, non-Jew, married to a man of a despicable race, the Hittites, who came from Ham, who was cursed by God, the Canaanites. She was an outcast. From a Jewish perspective, from God's point of view. Not only is she an outcast, historically speaking, because she committed adultery with the king. She cheated on her husband. Despicable. According to the Old Testament law that reigned supreme in David's day, and as the king, he knew that if you commit adultery, you were to be stoned to death. Bob David was not stoned to death. And Bathsheba was not stoned to death. Wait, why was that? Well, because they didn't obey God's law. And at the same time, that was disobedient. But God overrides man's sinfulness and disobedience and does great things because it was through. So David ended up committing adultery with Bathsheba. And then he and David ends up arranging the murder or death of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. So David's a murderer and an adulterer. And then uh, now that the husband's gone, David marries Bathsheba. 
And then they end up having four children together. God does override our sins, but there are consequences because the consequence of the immorality between David and Bathsheba was the death of that baby when it was born, the illegitimate child. But then David had three more sons, Solomon and Nathan and another son. And both Nathan and Solomon are in the genealogy of Jesus in Luke chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 1. That is the grace of God. Do you know that Solomon, the, the second greatest king of Israel, was born of Bathsheba? That is amazing and mind-boggling for me to think about. Bathsheba was an undeserving, condemned, pathetic outcast. And yet God allowed the birth of Solomon to come through her, out of which would come the Messiah, Savior of the world. God doesn't push outcasts away. God comes to out. God is seeking. Jesus Christ is seeking out outcasts. That's who He's coming to save. And to woo to Himself. Outcasts. The despised. The pathetic. Those of ill repute. It's another guy in here. Uh, I put it on there. Perez. Who was that guy? Verse 3. To Judah were born Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah. And Tamar pretended to be a prostitute, covered her face. She propositioned Judah, her father-in-law. They had sexual intimacy. Tamar became pregnant. Tamar gave birth to Perez and Zerah. Incestuous uh, children of an adulterous relationship. Yet Perez and Zerah, they make it in Jesus Christ's genealogy. They should have been outcasts. Amazing. God is gracious. God is gracious. He wants to save the outcast, reach the outcast. Are you an outcast? I was. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 talks about the biography of Christians. It's kind of humiliating. This is you from God's point of view. This is me from God's point of view. If you think you're a big shot, listen to this. God reminds us through Paul chapter 1 verse 26 says this. For consider your calling, brethren. Consider your calling and status before you became a Christian. What you really were, not in the eyes of the world, but before God. And even in the world. Your lineage. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many Christians who were wise according to the flesh from a human point of view. We're all just kind of, we're, we're ho-hum by way of our intelligence. We're not necessarily all prestigious making a great impact in the world. So it's not wisdom or smarts that win favor with God. For the most part, Christians, they're, they're pretty ordinary in terms of their intelligence. I'm not giving you an excuse to get a C- on your test in college, by the way. But anyway, Christian, uh, not many were wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. They don't wield influence. They're not the movers and shakers of the world. That's what this is saying. The movers and shakers of the world are those in politics, uh, professional athletics, and in Hollywood. Those are the movers and shakers. And in academia. But in the... On, on the contrary, verse 27, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world. I am weak. How about you? But I'm a Christian. I'm saved. I know the God of the universe who is omnipotent. That's okay if I'm weak. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. God reaches out to outcasts. And it's usually the outcasts who are brought to their knees and are in the gutter and they need a Savior. That's why they come to God in repentance. They understand their need. They recognize their sinfulness. God, I need your help. Jesus, I need a Savior. And Jesus 
is willing to respond and he does. Jesus the Messiah was born to save outcasts. Finally, number four, Jesus the Messiah was born to save sinners. Every single person in this genealogy saved Jesus himself was a sinner. A miserable, pathetic, compromised sinner. But that's why Jesus was born. That's why Jesus came. That's what Christmas is all about. As a matter of fact, from the Christmas stories, we know that God told Joseph to name the child Jesus, Yeshua. God saves. That was his name. God saves. Savior in a body. Because he came to save his people from their sins. His name had meaning. His name was his mission. Savior of sinners. That's what Jesus means. Amazing. Look at this pathetic list of sinners. The greatest Jew there ever was Abraham, the father of the Jews. You mean he was a pathetic sinner? How dare you say that? Well, that's what Scripture says. Abraham, for 75 years, was a total pagan. He was worshiping false gods and idols. God didn't strike him down dead. God graciously saved him out of the pit. And then created the Jewish race through Abraham. And then even after he got saved, Abraham was still a pathetic sinner. Really? Yeah, he was. Read Genesis. He was a polygamist. He was an adulterer. He was a liar. He was a coward. Really, this is all in Genesis. I'm not making this up. Um, he lacked tremendous faith at times. He was a great man of faith, but at other times just major lapses of faith. But at the same time, he was a believer. He loved God. God loved him. Scripture says that Abraham was a friend of God and God was his friend. So he was saved and he was forgiven. And he was forgiven because of the death of Christ that would happen 2,000 years later on behalf of Abraham. But practically speaking, Abraham was a sinner. He struggled with sin every day of his life just like we all do. And yet God saved him out of his sin because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Other sinners there. Isaac. Isaac was a sinner. Isaac was a pathetic sinner just like we all are. Jacob. Jacob was named deceiver. Boy, how do you like that? Jacob the supplanter. Jacob the deceiver. Jacob the compromiser. Jacob lived a life of deception for 40 years, lying to his parents, lying to his brother, cheating against his brother. He was also a coward, ran away from his brother, ran away from God, trying to finagle things and manipulate his father-in-law. He was also a polygamist, had at least four wives. That was a violation of Scripture. God did not condone polygamy. There were consequences that the patriarchs suffered in their lifetime from their sexual immorality and polygamy. Scripture never condones that. That warranted the death penalty. But God was gracious and didn't kill Jacob even though he deserved to be killed because of his polygamy. Overrode his sin, did great things in spite of his sin. Jacob the polygamist, Jacob the liar. Then there was Judah. Judah was sexually immoral, committed adultery, had incest with his daughter-in-law. Hated his brother Joseph, was responsible for the throwing uh, his brother Joseph into the pit and getting beat up and feeling sorry about it later. In other words, David already talked about him. King David, great King David, made of marble. 17 feet high, you can see the statue. No, Scripture's clear. David was a sinner, saved by God, loved God, God loved him. At the same time, practically speaking, he was a sinner. Scripture's clear about David. David had up to nine wives. He was a polygamist. That was wrong. He was a man of bloodshed. His hands were so bloody, God didn't let him build the temple. Sometimes he was ruthless with his enemies. You can read about it. 
lacked grace. He was a lousy father, pathetic, did not give proper attention to his children. He was a liar. He was a coward. One time he was afraid of a certain pagan king and as he was in his presence, he feigned insanity and started pulling out his beard and salivating all over himself and scribbling with his fingernails into the wall, pretending to be insane so that the king would have mercy on him instead of trusting God to protect him. He had to repent of that sin later and he wrote a psalm about it. King David. But bottom line, David who knew the true God was and David put his faith in the true God. And David was saved by the true God. And God was patient with David the sinner when he should have been, should have been struck dead ten times over. God is gracious. God is patient and merciful with sinners. I dare say nobody would be alive in this chapel this morning if we got what we deserved, historically, practically speaking, in light of God's law, if we lived according to the Old Testament. Stoned to death. We'd all be dead. Seriously. Well, why does God, God let us live? Because He's a gracious God. He's a saving God. He's a merciful God. He's a patient God. And He has a plan and a solution for our horrible sin. It is Jesus Christ, the God-man, who died on the cross, absorbed the wrath of God in His body and in His soul on behalf of sinners and anybody that would put their faith and trust in Him and cry out to Him, Jesus, save me from my sin. Jesus will answer that prayer. And He will instantaneously forgive any sincere sinner who prays to Jesus as Savior And in that moment, He will save you from your sin. He will wipe you clean. He will forget all about your sins, cast them as far as the east is from the west. He'll put His Holy Spirit to live in you, to preserve you, to help you, to guide you, to teach you all the days of your life. His hand of blessing will be upon you. He adopts you, puts you in the family of God. So now you have a believing community to support you and be your network and encouragement. He's giving you the gift of prayer to commune with Him directly, anytime, anywhere. The Creator of the universe, always at your disposal, only a prayer way. He's giving you the Word of God for guidance in life. In practical living, so many glorious treasures that come with being a a Christian saved by Jesus the Messiah, born to save sinners. If you're a sinner who's been saved by Jesus, we've got much to celebrate, as I said. And I encourage you, celebrate. Celebrate today. Celebrate this week. Celebrate the Christmas season. Share your celebration with others, especially those who don't know Christ. And you can tell them, Jesus can be your Savior too. Just focus on Christ. Focus on Jesus. Focus on His death. Focus on what He can do for sinners. That'll penetrate the heart deeper and quicker than anything you could ever say to anybody. That's what Christmas is all about. Jesus the Messiah, born to save sinners. Let's go ahead and thank God and commit our time to Him in prayer. Father, we do thank You for Scripture Because apart from it, we we wouldn't know truth, Lord. We wouldn't know your mind. We wouldn't know true history. We wouldn't know how to live today. We would have no hope for the future. And I thank you that you've you've preserved Scripture for us. You've given it to the church. That you have given us the Holy Spirit to interpret it and understand it properly. That it's our very food for our soul. God, thank you for saving sinners. And thank you for those at GBF that you have saved and adopted into the family of God. And God, I do pray that you'd continue to work on the hearts of those who don't know you personally, that you'd just keep wooing them, stirring them up with your word, working on their conscience, enlightening their understanding, that, that, that you might draw them to yourself. They'd repent and be saved and know who Jesus truly is so he would get his due praise and glory as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Thank you so much for our Savior Jesus Christ.
Commit it to you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.